Hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me once more. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. God, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. It is through Jesus Christ, our victor, our deliverer, we pray. Amen. Can you remember what felt like a perfect day in your life? Can you remember what felt like a perfect day? Can you remember a a perfect season of life? A perfect season of your life. It was that moment or that stretch of time where you simply felt, ah, All is right in the world. God has blessed me. Perhaps it was a family vacation, right, on the road with the windows down, everyone singing along to the music, if you like to sing, as my family sometimes did. Was it a a Christmas Eve or a Christmas morning surrounded by the voices of your friends or family of the church singing favorite hymns? How could we forget the presents that would come afterwards? Was it a summer cookout, right? The smells of barbecue, children playing, laughter in their mouths and in your ears, your hands perhaps supporting that plate of far too much barbecue food on it. Perhaps it was the wedding day, birth of a child. Perhaps it was graduating from school or finishing some immense project. When we reminisce of such times or such a day, nostalgia is close at hand. We just think, oh, remember when? Oh, how I wish I could go back to that. We have a hope for it to come again, a hope to be delivered from whatever hardships, right? Whatever hopelessness or difficulty or despair that we face today. And even in those greatest of moments, whatever they were or whatever they will be when they come, we know they won't last. Even if we struggle to savor them in the moment, we know they won't last. We know somewhere up ahead, despair looms. Or perhaps we feel it chasing close behind us. And we all, we all long for a full, final, and forever deliverance. Do we not? Right? A deliverance that won't go away, a perfect day that won't end. We might experience this uh, in our individual or our private Bible reading and prayer. Right? We wonder, God, will you never restore the, the intimacy I once knew in studying your word and it being alive to me? God, will you forget me forever? This happens in our churches, right? Our church family feasts or celebrations can give way to disunity or petty disagreements. Many churches across our nation in the last few years have, have had their fair share. Now, if this is true in the church, how much more so is it in the world, right? Those who don't know Christ, their perfect days... And the hope to return to them cascade into a bonfire of confusion, 
of wondering if something better might come, hopelessness painted on their faces, right, ticking across the news network screens. You see it typed all over their social media pages. See, in hopeless times, or in view of their coming, we must ask, how can we cultivate hope that perseveres? Hope that isn't just here today and then is gone tomorrow. How do we practice that hope, and how can we ensure that that hope will persevere to the very end, to the day that Jesus promises to come back to his people? Well, Psalm 126 describes and directs us how how we can have such a persevering hope. It reflects this in the text. There's a remembering and a reciting people. They're, They're remembering and reciting a glorious deliverance. Yet in the latter half of the psalm, they pray desperately to be delivered. It seems almost like a bipolar text in what's happening in Psalm 126. And so we learn this, if we sum it up, we learn this from Psalm 126, because God has given a great deliverance in the past. Because God has given a great deliverance in the past. We can persevere in hope today. We can hope and persevere, we can persevere rather in hope today, knowing he will deliver again. In verses one through three, we learn this more specifically. We can persevere in hope by remembering and reciting, by remembering and reciting past deliverances. If you look with me again at verses one through three, what do we find? We find a picture painted of deliverance right? Of, of laughter. I love that imagery. Mouths filled with laughter, overflowing with laughter, dreams coming true. Even their enemies, right? The nations think, wow, this must be from their God. Well, there's no little discussion about what the deliverance is that they are remembering, right? Perhaps is it, is it, uh, the, is it the exodus, right? That they're coming out from that. They're always remembering that in the Psalms, right? What's more likely here is this, is this is perhaps written even later. That this psalm is reflecting actually a time when, uh, the moment when God was returning the remnant of Judah out of uh, exile in Babylon. After they had been in, in exile for 70 years in slavery in Babylon, occupying that area, being taken back by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this celebration is likely happening due to both their return but also likely is when they were relaying the foundation of God's temple, that God's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And there's a text in Ezra 3, verses 10 through 11. I'll just read it to you, but it recounts this scene. It says, the priests coming with the trumpets, the Levites with the cymbals, they sang responsively to each other, giving thanks, singing, he is good, his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. It says that, Everyone shouted with a great shout because the temple foundations had been laid again. You can imagine this like a roar of a stadium, right? they've They've come back and they're laying the foundation of the place where God said, I'll be there with you. That's what's happening in Ezra 3. So why do commentators think that that's the scene that Psalm 126 is pointing to or thinking about? Well, in part, it's because of the horror that had happened in Israel's past. See, 70 years prior to this, 
When they, before they went into exile, Jerusalem, God's city, had been under siege. There had been violent brutality in the streets. There were kitchens hosting cannibalism. And there were all forms of horror happening. This was followed then by a 600-mile march into exile, away from God's city, away from God himself. And some of those present in Ezra 3, they had actually lived through all those horrors. For many of them, though, they were just hearing these stories from their parents, from their grandparents. And so the scene of Ezra 3 that Psalm 126, many believe, is recounting is of captives coming home. It's deliverance. Could you almost imagine them pinching themselves? Have we finally made it back? Are we really back where God promised that he'd be our God and we, his people? Is it possible that he'll come and dwell among us in the temple? Well, look at verse 2, because it describes this reality that was always meant to be a part of Israel's story. That's what makes this deliverance so glorious, is that the nations, the enemies, were to look at Israel in their relationship with God and say, my goodness, this is from their God. They would recognize that only the God of the universe could do as he had done for Israel, and the ends of the earth were to come and worship. They were to come into Israel to worship their God. And verse 3 just uh, recounts even their response, right? The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. What an important, important memory to remember. One to recite to one another so as to not forget it. Through the years, we've, uh, we've had several beloved friends and relatives who've dealt with Alzheimer's at varying levels. And those friends can recount how their loved ones regularly began to forget even the way through their own homes. Right? This bred such hopelessness right, in those homes. But for some, they enacted strategies to fight these moments. The walls and the countertops began to be filled with notes, with arrows. This is where you go to find this. This is where you go to find that. The family members became uh, beacons of hope, right? Beacons of saying, this is where to go. Spiritually due to sin for so many of us, we are always a forgetting people. We, we forget deliverances that happened but a moment ago. We forget God's deliverances even this morning. In the morning we might bless God and by the evening we are ready to despair and forsake. See, Israel was commanded to be rememberers, reciters, and they were to have proverbial arrows on the walls and the countertops of their lives all the time. That's what the Psalms are to us. It's always a remember, I appeal to the right hand of the God Most High, the times that he saved me. And they would actively remember, recite, and sing nationwide deliverances, even personal deliverances. How many of them are of David, right? Talking about personal deliverances. Well, even these psalms in 120 to 134, these were called the songs of ascent, right? And I preached one of these, I think, the last time I was here with you as well. The songs of ascent were the psalms, the songs that Israel would sing on their way back up to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were singing these songs to remind one another as they went to celebrate what God had done. The psalm was likely sung to refresh and to recite why they are even able to go back. Because God delivered us out of Egypt, out of Babylon, 
out of exile. And this practice should reveal to us how persevering hope is going to be cultivated in our lives. It's through remembering. It's through reciting to one another God's deliverances of us. So that's the question. What do your walls and countertops hold in your life? Do they remind you and others of God's past kindnesses, his deliverances of you? And it may be your walls and countertops, but uh, proverbially, there we go, speaking, are they there? Do you have a way to remember or call to mind the times when you experienced God's grace afresh? Or, or a season when you were freed again from a sin struggle? Do you remind and recite to one another what God has done for you? Do you know each other well enough to say, do you remember when we prayed for you to get a new job and God provided that? Do you remember when your son or daughter was sick and we prayed and God brought healing to our children? Do you remember when? Remember what you were like when we first met? God sanctified you. <laughs> Remember what I was like. God sanctified me. Or we recite scripture to one another when discouraged in sin. We say, don't you remember Colossians 3? It says that God canceled your record of debt. The shame you feel, it was nailed to a tree along with our naked Savior who saved us there. And part of how and why we do this, or when rather we do this, is when we gather here. This is why we continue to come back We come back to sing not only to God, but to sing to one another. That's what we're doing when we recite uh, and remember in our songs. So to persevere in hope that God will deliver again, whether that be in the grand cosmic deliverances of God, delivering us through the cross, through Christ, or in our personal ways that we've seen God deliver, we need to continue to work to remember. Grab a notebook, track these memories. In the Old Testament, they had Ebenezer's. You can make a stone pile in your backyard if you want and say, that reminds me of a time God saved me. You can memorize verses like uh, Mark 10, 45. It talks about the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Right? To give his life as a ransom for many. To deliver you. He gave his life to deliver. And so we make a point to listen and to recite to one another that God indeed delivers us. We must be intentional not only in worship, but also in our personal lives. That is how we will cultivate persevering hope. Well, not only do we remember and recite God's deliverances in the past, but we also persevere in hope by lacing our lives with unless you type prayers, with desperate type prayers. Look with me as uh, we move to verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll focus mostly on 4 here. And you see there's such a tone change Right, between these sections. In verse 4, the, the joy, the dreams come true, or rather the, tre- the dream that came true, and the laughter is now silenced. They're now praying, restore our fortunes, O Lord. See, yes, they remember the deliverance, but their lived now has desperation. They are not praying for fortunes of affluence, but rather for fortunes of mercy, for God to bring that upon them again. Notice that word there, the negeb. The Negev. That's the region that was the southern part of Judah. And in the summer months especially, it was a desert. Right? The word Negev actually means dry and parched, literally. And so 
They're praying from within a circumstance that has desert-like despair. There's no rain clouds coming of deliverance on the horizon. Instead of giving over to despair, though, what do they do? What are they teaching us to do? They turn to God and they pray. They pray, let streams of mercy flow again through our lives, through the parched desert-like despair that we face. In essence, they say, unless you deliver, unless you deliver, we are done. I remember years ago when we were, uh, we experienced this a call into ministry or so we thought. My wife often says, or I should say we both say uh, unromantically that we got married because we just felt called the same direction. And we said, sure, we'll go together. My wife's okay with that story, which is good. But we were accepted into a campus ministry and had to raise the money to go. It's always great when they say, yes, you can go, just raise all the funds. And we were but a few weeks out from actually uh, intending to report, but we had a $16,000 amount left to raise before we could go. In the two weeks uh, that, that passed, we continued to pray, unless you type prayers. Unless you lead us to those who can send us, unless you provide, Lord, we cannot go. Unless you deliver, we are done. On the day, on the last day uh, that we needed to have the funds in hand, we had a friend call. We heard the voice on the other side, pack your bags. And we've collected the donations for you. It's $16,000. It's an amazing moment, obviously, of us simply saying, God, unless you deliver, we are done. And certainly our unless you prayers did not wrestle God to the ground. And that's, not, that's not the lesson. No, it's that God delivers in his timing. And we simply continue to pray out of our desperation and say, God, unless you deliver, we are done. And this should lead us to think about our lives in light of how this psalmist prays in verse 4. Are our prayers filled with desperation for God to move, for God to deliver us? In your prayer to be rid of a persisting sin, do you pray, God, unless you help me, I will never be free? What about in your prayer for your children to know, serve, and love God? What about for your neighbors to know, love, and serve God? Is there desperation? Perhaps what has threatened your hope hasn't been out there, but perhaps it's in here. It's your own doubt or that persistent sin. Perhaps it's, it's bitterness or resentment towards a loved one or maybe enemies, supposed enemies at work or in the neighborhood. Perhaps it's pervasive fear in some area or all the ways you've looked to escape present circumstances or you've looked for some other deliverer to come and to rescue you. See, before we can lace our lives in prayer, desperate prayer to God, we need to get the God right. We need to pray to the deliverer, the one who actually can deliver. We have to forfeit any false deliverers. And so the psalmist in verse 4 shows us that to persevere in hope, in order to persevere with hope, we have to look to God alone, right? And he not only delivers us, but he actually gives us even more encouragement and confidence in the New Testament through the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you trust in Christ, it says in Romans 8 that you have a helper, an advocate in the Holy Spirit. He is one who intercedes for you, even when you don't have the words to say. He prays on your behalf. 
Right? He makes your longings, your needs, and your despair known to God. So whether you are in moments of real despair internally or externally, or if you even fail to grasp the, the gravity of your moments, of what you face, the Spirit yet prays perfectly on your behalf. It's meant to be an encouragement when we fail to lace our lives with prayer. The Helper prays on our behalf. The Deliverer sends the Helper to pray on our behalf. So knowing that God has delivered his people in the past and that you have a spirit, the spirit, interceding for you, we can strive to pray unless you type prayers, both for things out there and for the things in here. And with confidence in that deliverance and with the spirit within, we can lace our lives with regular prayer, knowing that such prayer even forms us and shapes us and gives us hope that will persevere to the very end. As we look at our last two verses, we look at our final point. And again, we see a people reflecting on how God has delivered them in the past. And they hear in these verses with tear-filled eyes, they persevere in hope, fixing their eyes on a final and a forever deliverance. Look with me in these these two verses. We see this twice-repeated picture of seed sowing in harvest time. Now, sowing seed in their understanding and their time would carry an overtone of death. That's what would be happening, a seed giving way to life. Sowing seed was a toilsome, tear-filled, anxious work for the people. Would the seeds grow? Would the drought starve the land? Would the rains come too fast and wash all of our work away? They'd wonder, would there be enough? And if yes, then life would come. Life would persist. But every year, every year, the winter rains would eventually come to the land of the Negeb. It would bring streams and it would bring life. And eventually harvest time would come, the sheaves. It's the harvest time. They'd go to bring in the sheaves. And they would fill their arms, their children and their neighborhoods, right, their villages with harvest time plenty. You see, what the psalmist is doing here in this prayer in verses 5 and 6 is they're using this agricultural picture to reveal something. The absolute certainty of God's faithfulness to deliver his people. They're saying even in the midst as we toil and we feel hopeless and we don't know if the rain is going to come, they're saying remember how the rain always comes. Remember how the harvest always comes and God feeds his people But in the midst of this, right, despite the certainty of what comes every season, the sowers are there still waiting, still weeping, still wondering, what about this time, God? Will you deliver us again with harvest time plenty? Will you deliver us as you have in the past? Will you deliver us in a forever type way? Remember that picture from uh, from Ezra 3. I think it provides an illustration for us of what we even see in the rest of Psalm 126, right? The exiles returned home. They laid the foundation of God's house, the temple. And in Ezra 3, we find this illustration or perhaps a reality of verses 5 and 6. I'll read to you the next two verses, Ezra 3, 12 and 13. I read 10 and 11 earlier. It tells us that though there was an immense chorus of responsive singing, right, trumpets and cymbals, victory-like shouts for joy, it says that there were yet present those who had seen the first temple before it was destroyed, before the exile. 
And what did they do? They wept. They wept and they wailed at the sight of the new temple. There was nothing to what was there before. It says that the sound of weeping and joyful shouting was so great that it was heard from far away, but people could not distinguish between the two sounds. You see, God had delivered his people, fortunes restored, captives brought home, temple foundations laid, and yet weeping. Deliverance given, but not a forever type way. Not as it once was. See, the psalmist is saying God's deliverance of us in the past was great. Yes, so great that even with tear-filled eyes, we are certain of a coming deliverance. That's what they're praying and singing, right? Restore us again. We know you will. Restore us, deliver us again. They're looking for more, for better, for a forever type deliverance. Church, can we relate to this? The deliverance that we are to remember today is not as exiles brought home. It is not the rebuilding of a temple. The deliverance that they longed for, looked for, prayed for, we have seen it. We have tasted it. We believe it. It is given to us in account in the word of God. The deliverance, what fills our mouths with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy, it has an address in history. The deliverance was wrought wholly through Jesus Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his Pentecost. See, Jesus' life and active obedience secured the righteousness that we need to have to be made right before God. Jesus' death on the cross was a passive obedience. It was what we needed for our sin to be paid by another. Jesus' resurrection completed said forgiveness and the justification of all who believe in him. And Pentecost, which most people don't put into this, this string of unrepeatable redemptive eras and moments, the Pentecost is the final redemptive delivering act. Why? Remember what they were so excited about in Ezra? Laying the foundations of the temple? Pentecost made us the temple. The Spirit of God resides in us. We are the temple. Do you see that redemptive act being fulfilled of God being in us? It's a one-time event where Jesus baptized the church. And all who believe in Christ are made part of that temple with the Spirit within And so if in Ezra they rejoiced to lay the foundation of the temple where they believed God would be present, how much more should we not rejoice? The Spirit of God is within us. Christ lives with us and in us. So even though this is the greatest of all deliverances, it has an address, a time stamp, Christ on a cross and an empty tomb. Do we still relate to this psalm? To verses 5 and 6. Is there still something worth weeping about? Of course, we wait, we wonder, we want something more still. It's not that Christ isn't enough. Yes, he is. What he has done has already accomplished redemption, but not yet fully. It's been done, yes, but we wait for something more. We wonder, God, will you deliver again? Or at least will you make rather that deliverance fully sight, we mean. We taste sin in ourselves, in the world, and we wonder, when will you deliver fully, finally, forever, where we'll be free from sin within and without? 
You can ask that question in your prayers. God, when? The New Testament ends. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come soon. When will deliverance finally be seen? We know it is coming because why? Because of the Spirit of God who resides within us. Because that deliverance happened at a cross and we became the temple. And so this matter of us needing to have persevering hope, how does this come about? Well, certainly we remember that deliverance. But we also fix our eyes on that future forever deliverance that's coming, or rather will be made sight for us. How did Israel remember? They would sing this psalm. They would sing this psalm to and with one another on their way up to God's city. And we follow that pattern. We have a better deliverance. We read this psalm as we did tonight, and we sing to one another. That's what we're doing. We're reciting, remembering, singing together as they did on our way to the heavenly city, our heavenly Jerusalem, where we will be with God forever. We come. And this is why, again, even with our first point, this is why we come and gather to sing. Because in doing so, we fix our eyes, our hearts, our voices on the coming day. And this is done. Our hope is is taught or trained to persevere when we continue to return Every Sunday, you come not just to sing praises to God yourself. You come for the person next to you and the people on the other side of the room. You're coming to sing for them, that we would remind each other of the deliverance done and the deliverance that we will see in full. That's how we persevere in hope as a people of God. One of the greatest deliverances, or rather one of the greatest despairings and deliverances, happened on the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. I'll close with this. In that uh, event at Dunkirk, the Nazi forces had forced what had remained of the British land infantry back up against the English Channel, right? Their backs were against the water. And due to the geography of the beaches and the harbors in Dunkirk, as well as these regular attacks from the submarines and from uh, planes overhead, the evacuation for the soldiers was near impossible. There was almost no way that this could happen. Well, as all looked bleak and lost, on May 26th, King George VI called for a national day of prayer. He called on the people of Britain to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance, and he had told them to plead for divine help. Two events immediately followed that day of prayer, those desperate prayers. There was an immense storm that swept across the area, which grounded all of the German planes. And there was followed by a great calm on the water, a calm that they said they hadn't seen for an entire generation. So this operation called Operation Dynamo, the evacuation, it was launched with 860 ships from Britain across the channel, nearly 700 of those being uh, British private citizens boats, their personal ones. They became known as the little ships of Dunkirk. And at the end of nine days, the miracle of Dunkirk had happened. There were 338,226 soldiers ferried across the English Channel. Had that not happened, the world would look like a very different place today. Winston Churchill said in the aftermath as they rejoiced, as their mouths were filled with laughter and joy, he said, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance 
the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. This deliverance was immense, right? World-altering. It was miraculous, we might say. It was an answer to a nation's lives being laced with desperate prayer. And while they could rejoice with laughter in their mouths, they yet knew there was a deliverance that needed to happen. One that would happen on Victory Day in 1944, right? When their enemy would be defeated. And they were, in a fully final sort of way, at least for that war. See, Operation Dynamo has happened for the people of God. Deliverance has come for you who trust in Christ, and it is not only in being evacuated, if you will, from death, no, but rather your sin and your misery, all of it all together has been taken on another. Christ's victory has given death the death blow. Sin, Satan, and the grave are defeated, even, even if we do not see it in full yet. So we look to the deliverance of the cross, to the empty tomb, and to the baptizing of the church by the Spirit of God, that he'd be in us, the temple of God, and we stand with certainty, knowing the deliverance happened, and we stand persevering in hope, looking for that deliverance to become fully sight when Jesus returns. What do we do as we wait? We remember, and we recite, and we sing to each other. We return here every week to do it. We fill our lives, the walls and countertops, with the markers that say, God has delivered you. God has shown you grace. You lace your lives with unless you type prayers, and together we continue to sing. We continue to sing as we will in just a moment of a future, final, and forever deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people who are prone to forget We are a people easily wearied. We remember those wonderful moments, and yet we forget that you are the one who gave them to us. We remember Christ on a cross, and yet we forsake so regularly, God. Oh God, we pray that you'd give us the faith to remember the deliverance wrought by Christ. We pray that in looking upon that deliverance, we would look to the day that you will return, and that you, God, by your grace and spirit, will give us hope that perseveres, hope that keeps us returning to sing with one another. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.